0: Welcome to the Jazz Podcast. In conversation with musicians from the UK jazz scene and beyond. And now your hosts, Rob Cope and Tara Binton. Hello and welcome to the Jazz Podcast. My name is Rob Cope. I'm your host and today I'm joined by the incredible saxophone player John War. How are you doing, John?
1: Good, man. Thank you very much for having me.
0: Oh, it's a pleasure. I've um, I've been enjoying your saxophone playing for a while now and it's great to get to chat. I'm going to play the listeners a track of yours. Uh, well, a track actually, we'll see if the copyright police come after me for this um but what i want to play them is uh one of the 1975 tracks with a mega tenor solo on at the end this is um happiness it's off their latest album being funny in a foreign language i'm gonna play the last 30 seconds with the tenor solo and if the copyright police come for me listeners then this segment will be entirely silent here we go John, tell us a bit about yourself. How? Who are you? What do you do? Well, um,
1: well, yeah, I'm a saxophonist, and um, I've I suppose I primarily play with 1975. Um, who? Are, for, for those who don't know, they're a, a pop band that they're from Manchester. Um, and been touring with them since 2014. Um, but recording with them since two thousand and twelve when they first put together their debut album and um I'm very fortunate that all of that very much aligns with my taste in music and the way in which I like to play the saxophone um because as much as I come from a jazz background, I think i'm I've always looked for areas within pop music to express myself within. Um, I very very rarely play jazz music. I, I try my best to, to practice it at home, and, and I work on transcriptions. And it's maybe it's ironic that I teach a lot of jazz improvisation to students, but I very very rarely play it live or work on it in in the studio. And so I'm very much the pop guy really, um, and a lot. Of, I, grew up listening to and the kind of music that me and my friends would share with one another during school and high school and music college and, um and so that that whole thing's very much a, a big part of my musical identity
0: where did you study
1: i went to leeds college of music
0: ah and uh, when did you study there where were you, when were you there
1: so i that was between 2007 and 2010 and right. so at the time. Still had their um, the bachelor's degree in jazz studies. I yeah. think they've kind of combined elements of music now, but back then there was a dedicated degree course to, to jazz music. Um, and uh, I had amazing teachers: uh, Tori Freestone, Rob Mitchell, and Cy Kaylo were my saxophone teachers, and um, it was amazing for me. I was, I'd, I'd look back on that. Uh, area well that time of study very fondly
0: wow that's amazing we did our undergrads at the same time i was at the royal northern 2000 and i graduated in 2010 as well um so yeah we must have been really close without knowing it so then how do you go from there to where you are now how did it all start with like sort of getting into the pop industry and obviously now being hugely successful and and massively in demand
1: um Oh, thank you. I wouldn't go that far, but that's very kind of <laughs> uh, Well, I, I think like most musicians, you, you just sort of, um, you just five years. You, you, like, I was, like most people, I was playing in wedding bands and doing a lot of functions and I started teaching. And I suppose those, those kinds of opportunities by means of just earning a bit of money. Um, but they weren't really um things for me. It's at least in terms of what I really wanted and desired from a career in music. Um but um I well I, I started playing in a band in my, my final year at at Leeds, I was I started playing for this band called Extracurricular, which were like this kind of like a hip-hop band for all intents and purposes. Um and me and a friend of mine, a trumpet player called Greg Nicholas. Trump, uh, me and him were like a two-piece horn section. Started working and playing with bands in in Leeds and and, and in and around Manchester as well and in the northeast I suppose up in Newcastle and all all of these bands or projects were very much in keeping with pop and rock music and if it happened to be jazz influenced it was far more groove based, it wasn't particularly straight ahead and so I think just generally speaking, that put me in good stead for working with a pop band like the 1975. And um, <clears throat> I think they probably weren't too re- really aware of what I was up to. I think they just knew of me as being a saxophone player. And I'm pretty certain that I was maybe the only saxophone player that they knew of. And certainly, That's so great. A saxophone player that was in the range. And so that probably worked in my favor. Um, and so it, it was... I suppose just I was extremely fortunate that I that I knew of the band. I knew Matty when we were growing up as well, because um, he has ties with the northeast, and uh, I grew up in Newcastle, and so we we have a circle of friends that all grew up together. If not playing music, heavily involved with other creative projects and uh, subjects in and out of school, and and so um, I I just happened to know the band. Um, but fortunately, anything that I'd done leading up to that point of working with them, I I think I'd done enough groundwork to, to to take the opportunity in my stride, I suppose.
0: That's so great. Did they always have the, a sound of a saxophone on their music? You know, was it like, we need a sax, John, will you do it?
1: Um, I think that only really arrived for their, for their, certainly their debut album, and then maybe a couple of their EPs that led up to that, because in their formative years as as a band, they were more, they were quite a heavy band. I I, I don't really know exactly what the right term would be, but um, more of like an emo band. And um, they didn't always have that um, like throwback 80s inspired sound, which I think the saxophone lends itself to very well within pop music. Um, And so they'd evolved a lot in, rebranded themselves and they had a ton of different names as well for their band before they landed on the 1975 and um so again that's another thing where i was very lucky they they around that time they were making music that was very conducive for a saxophone player to play over
0: yeah, I never, li- I, I admit, I never listened to them uh, until the fifth album, Being Funny in a Foreign Language. And I was like, all right, let's see what all this is about. You know, all my students are totally obsessed with the band. Yeah. I don't want them getting too far ahead of me. And I pressed play and there's yeah. so much saxophone on it. I could have believed my ears. Like, it's it's incredible that you've got such a big part in all of their music. Yeah. You know, it's, it's yeah. really unusual in like, pop bands that are trying to be new but like you said it's got a real like vintagey feeling to it but that's well, i
1: think they when they got their break there were a handful of other bands that were doing a fairly similar thing not with the same kind of identity as in five but m83 had just released that album um uh, what's it called i think it's called hurry up we're, we're dreaming or i can't remember but the Big pops of Midnight City, their song has a big alto solo at the end. That had been released maybe a couple of years before the 1975's debut album. And bands like Bonavere, who have who have always heavily featured saxophones and horns, and Mike Lewis on sax. He's quite a, a big part of Bonavere's sound. Um I think those two pro- projects probably had quite a big influence on the 1975 sound to some degree. Um so there was enough of it going on around them to I suppose to give further context to them making the decision to have saxophone um, because it was just at the start of this kind of resurgence, I suppose in pop music saxophone being in pop music.
0: yeah, it did have a period of not and now it's like super trendy you know it's really like seems it's super in fashion at the moment, which is great yeah, great for us um so how are you balancing (laughs) how do you balance like how much of the year are you on tour at the moment
1: well at the moment the band are in the middle of a quite a, a big tour campaign and so a lot of their the kind of cycle that the band have is that they'll spend however long making an album and then they have a tour campaign off the back of that album for about 18 months and so we got together to rehearse for this campaign in july last year and the tour officially started in at the back end of no uh sorry october in the states um and we've been touring on and off since then and i think uh we'll be running until s- early next year sometime i think um and so i'm i'm away a lot which is which is great in a lot of ways and it's really exciting and it's in terms of my career it's very much exactly what i'd like to be doing but then it's tough being away from home and away from my partner and sort of strike a balance is i think it's it's the type of thing that most musicians struggle with even if you don't tour but if you just work most weekends you know playing gigs in and around town and playing late sets um you, you miss out on a lot of quality time that would normally be spent with family um And so it is it's a very hard thing to strike a balance uh, between your work and home and family life
0: is there anything you've done that's been like particularly successful as a way to help because i do know a lot of people like you say on tour who love the gigs but hate the lifestyle attached of like sleeping on the bus and never just being in your own bed you know there's bits of it that are really glamorous and there's bits that aren't how do you how do you actually Help yourself, like if you're away for a long time, to to get to feel good.
1: Um, well, I'm lucky that I'm I'm touring with really good people, mm. um, and the the guys in the band and the crew, the the tour party that we travel with, have become very dear friends of mine. And um, so the you know the downtime between gigs, which you know really is the I mean, the time spent playing music on a tour is a very, very small percentage of of the day. Um, the rest of the time you are just hanging out in a dressing room or a tour bus or a lot of times in airports and like endless van rides between venues and hotels and airports and the rest of it. And so you need to be with the right people. Otherwise, it would be awful. And fortunately, I've, I've never had a really awful experience on, on tour. I've, I've always really enjoyed it. and. Um, but that's very much defined by the people that I'm with. Um, uh, and so I, I've been very lucky in that regard. I think also because I started the first 1975 tour that I did, I was, I think I was 24, 25 years old. And so I was bright eyed and bushy tailed about the whole thing and I was so excited about it. And so I think that's kind of conditioned my mindset a little bit when it comes to thinking about touring. And so I still get really excited at all and and i i don't mind being on a tour bus at all i'm quite comfortable in that environment and um i've gotten so used to essentially living out of a suitcase and being in hotels a lot of the time that i i don't mind that at all and um and then just the basic things of trying to look after yourself whilst you're traveling trying to you know go to the gym or try and eat well try and sleep as, as best you can and and try not to party too hard. But I think those (laughs) days are kind of behind us
0: anyway.
1: It's just the the usual stuff. I think most people know what they have to do to look after themselves. And so it's finding the right habits to facilitate all of that whilst you're traveling.
0: Do you remember a moment, either on that first tour or before it, did you have an inkling that this band was going to be really like big at any point? You know, was there a moment where you were like, well, this is, you know, people are into this. I,
1: I Well, yeah, I, I think so, because before before I joined them on tour, they had, I think they were about a year into their first album campaign. And so by this point, they had had a ton of airplay on Radio 1 and had a very good relationship with them. And so they were backed heavily by Radio 1 and the right kind of channels online. and um, And they were such an exciting band it was such a and and also i at the time i mean i'm sure this is the case for most people most people when they're young they don't have friends that are on the verge of being in a massive band there are a lot of musicians who have very talented friends who do well within their scene and are very well respected and held in high regard but when you have close friends in like a a network of like your social circle for me that was up in newcastle um we were all watching the night when they were just on the cusp of their break. And it was, everyone was talking about it. It was a real focal point and a topic of conversation for all of my friends. And then they would release a new video or something and we'd all share it and check it out online. And, um, and that's quite a rarity. I think when your friends are getting airplay on radio one, and this was kind of just before Instagram became what it is now, and so yeah, I feel like everyone's in a band now. Everyone's got very respectfully. Everyone's got a podcast. Everyone's written a book. <laughs> everyone's
0: <laughs> sorry, John. That's incredible. Respectfully, everyone's got a podcast. Yes, no, you are, I agree. I, I really do. I,
1: I really do mean that with all my heart, very respectfully. But hopefully, my point is is clear that it's it's very easy for people to really pretend that they're doing something when they perhaps may not be that, you know, you can, yeah. um, and whereas 10 years ago, that wasn't so much of a thing. I think if you became recognized for doing something great, it was because you were doing something really, really great. Um, and, uh, also just to reiterate, I, I really love this podcast so much. <laughs> and I, I was listening to Bob Reynolds episode and I know that you've had Ben, Wendell on, so it's a legit thing that you
0: guys... I tell you, for me, when it blew up, we'd had, like, four years of amazing UK-based guests, and I'd maybe done 220 shows or something, and I was sitting at school, and I was like, well, I think I've done enough that I have the right to just ask everybody. And everybody will say yes and i thought well the biggest fish is sonny rollins so i'll just emailed him and he was like yeah great call me on friday and i was like oh wow i spoke to sonny and then i was like well bob mincer has to say yes now and then john scofield and maria schneider you know suddenly like everyone like if sonny said yes then we better do it so um it's it yeah, that's that's good for me. But but well, well we're on the subject. Thank you for making the time because it's wonderful to sit and talk about the saxophone. Um, can you tell oh, us how how did you first get into the sax? Was it uh, how old were you and where did this all start?
1: Um, well I was 10 years old when I started playing the saxophone. And then prior to that I was playing piano a little bit taking piano lessons at primary school and that kind of thing. Um I, and I think even before I was playing the saxophone and when I was just playing piano, I, I really, really loved music. I was always drawn towards it. I, was, I can remember being very moved by music from a young age. I always wanted to dance to it or sing along to it in the car when I was with my mom or dad in the car. And um, I was always listening to it. And I'd just, I think I was very lucky to have the right people around me to, who recognised that I had some kind of a connection to music and they could help point me in the right direction. And so I had um family friend of mine called George Irving, who was certainly one of those people. And he put me onto great music like Stevie Dan and Michael Brecker. Oh, I love those James ones. The,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: And so that just gave me, I don't know, a good foundation to work, work upon. And it's not as if I really understood what that music was at that time. If I was 10 or 11 years old, it's, you know like he i can remember george showing me giant steps when i was 12 and i was pretending that i liked it but i had no idea what was going on it was it was too frantic and aggressive and but it was it was seeing george be excited and inspired by it that made me even more curious is to try and figure out what was going on and um and then i suppose like most people i had like-minded friends in high school and we started bands together and um I had an amazing saxophone teacher, Gary Cowie, based in the northeast and um he was just he had this endless encouragement and um is still very much a a pillar in the musical community, especially within music education um in in Newcastle and northumberland and, and it was I was spoilt rotten with encouragement and the right kind of people that had a, a good influence over me
0: um, throughout my teen years. Did you always know you wanted to go to music college? Was there anything else in the running?
1: Um, I think so because I had there were a couple of people that were maybe two or three years older than me in school and in the youth bands that I was in, like the the county I used to play in the Northumberland County Youth Jazz Orchestra and the regional youth jazz orchestra, which is based at the Sage Gateshead. And, um, a couple of the other kids that were in that who we were a little bit older than me had w- went to Leeds, um, saxophone player called, uh, John McKillop.
0: do yeah, you know John? Yeah, John. well, yeah. Um,
1: yeah. And, um, and also John, uh, Johnny Blue Hat Davis, who's Sam Fender's saxophone player. He was also right. in those same youth bands. So. Um, Seeing those guys, seeing those guys go off and do their thing, and I don't know if John went to uh, Johnny Davis went to uh, music college, but still, they they had an influence over me, and I kind of knew that I was going to at least try to to go down that route. But um, I I think if I was to do anything else, like I did graphic design for my A level as well as music and music tech, and I might have done that, but. I think based on how i'm talking about it now you can probably tell i didn't really want to i think there was no other option really i think i i uh, the decision was almost made for me because I, I
0: just didn't want to do anything else that's kind of beautiful when it happens it's easy you know you've got this one life skill you're yeah. good at it just go with it Sorry, it sounds like I'm accusing you of not having any other life skills. It's just I don't. Oh no no you no! Know? This is it. I can yes. like blow into this tube, and that's it. That's the only thing I've got going. Um, do you have a saxophone? Do you have a favourite saxophone of all the ones that you own?
1: Um, probably my Mark Six, my, my tenor. It's downstairs. I mean, I can run and get it if you want. But I, I am. Um, I think it's, it's in your yeah, profile I got, picture. Uh, might be, yeah. When you when I, you join the call,
0: what's that one?
1: I think it is. Yeah, that'll be my um my Mark Six. Um, and I haven't had I, I've I've got Mark Six alto as well, but both of those horns are quite new in the grand scheme of things. I um I got my tenor at the end of 2019, and I just got my alto. I got silver plated uh Mark Six just a few months ago.
0: Has it been replated? Both, Sorry, has it been Um, replated or is it like, or did you just buy it and it was already like silver and off you go? I think it's, I
1: don't think it's been replated. No, because there's still a fair amount of wear on it. Well, where it's. I don't know too much about that kind of thing, but, um, no, I sure don't, it hasn't I
0: don't, I don't pretend I know Bob minzer has got his ones, like been, he's like dipped it in gold. So it's like, looks brand new gold plated, you know, but, but it's a mark six. It's kind of a crazy thing to do to a sax. sounds good though. Um, um but yeah, so I,
1: the, the, the is from 1972 and my alto is from 1973. So they're both six digit sixes. And so they, they're generally more free blowing um anything that i've tried from from an earlier era of mark six horns that tend to be just for me a little bit stuffy and i can't yeah. do what i to do with them um and uh i've got a, a p Moriat soprano um because for a few years I, I had an endorsement with P. Morriott and and so i i still have that soprano from when i was playing their horns but i think I, I just really wanted to mark six, and I wanted to play that really more than anything else. And so when I, I was in a position to to take the plunge and to, to buy one, I, it was almost like breaking up with someone when I had to
0: send an email to P. Moriat to explain. <laughs> <laughs> you like, guys? I'm really sorry. Yeah, there's yeah. these saxes that are really old, and you know they got a very special sound. Sorry.
1: Oh well, yeah, and um, but yeah. So to answer your question, probably my. Favourite saxophone would be my, my my tenor, Moxley's.
0: Wow, that's a great, that's really interesting about the sound because I think those earlier ones, I had a 58 five digits for, for a very long time and um, it's just, it's such a dark sound, it's such like what I'd call a jazz horn that I can't like play anything else on it, it's just, just won't brighten up, I can't even, you know, it's not, I know exactly what you mean in that it's not, it's not but it's nice for you a lot a lot of people i talk to regardless of how they sound revere them so much that it kind of cancels out any common sense it's quite nice to just have a conversation that's like ah they're too dark for me you know get a get yeah. a get a
1: late one. i think it's it's just always been a, a part of my sound has always been it being generally bright and very, very free-blowing and um it's it just works well in a, in a more of like a pop bass setting really um something that like, can like, kind of like cut through and and carry over a live like a loud live pop rock band um and so with like mouthpieces in mind as well I, I used to play a duke off for a long time um it was like a, a d8 metal duke um but I, I I got that when I was really young I was 18 I think when I got that mouthpiece and I was Basically looked at, at, the time I was really into Tower of Power. And so I oh, looked yeah. at video <laughs> and just basically look at what the mouthpieces looked like that Lenny Pickett and Tom Polliter were playing. And I'd just go to a shop and try and find one that looked fairly similar. And that was my basis of judgment, which is That's not so the right great. way to go. About <laughs> a mouthpiece. But I'm on like a Morgan Fry mouthpiece now. Oh,
0: that me is, too. His, his are incredible.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's the it's the most even and most comfortable mouthpiece I've I've ever played. And I've been i t- I've tried other things. I've tried a link, I've tried Gardalis, I've tried a handful of Ebonite pieces, but I've stuck to my um, metal uh, Morgan Fry.
0: Wow, mine is Ebonite and it's uh it's a link that's been like i don't know it's essentially it was a link and now instead of otto link he, he's marked morgan fry on it and you know like altered it to his like liking i suppose but um you know it has a number on i guess he's done a whole series of of them of different mouthpieces that have been because a link's so like blank canvas anyway it's quite a good start i guess for messing with and um I just can't find, there's nothing else that, that in in my experience it can even come close. This thing is just, a, that man is very good at mouthpieces, I guess. Very good. Mm. This is a 72, I think, this soprano. It's got six digits. It's a Mark Six. Oh, wow. But because it's, um, I've got this great, this, I love this mouthpiece. It's a Barry 64. I never see anyone else play them, but I really like it. Just sounds cool. It's so funny. It's
1: funny you say that. I I tried one out recently because um, oh cool. I've, I've I've been playing soprano a little bit more on the 1975 shows. There's a couple of songs where I play soprano, and so I've been checking out some different mouthpieces. And I and I recently just bought a a Maya, Ooh, uh,
0: Cool. Like a, How is that?
1: Very bright, very open. Because be- before that, I was playing a Link, an Ebonite auto uh, Link. But then whilst I was on the same day that I bought the mayor, I tried out a, a Barry piece because I saw that um Ranford Marsalis used to play something very similar. I think it was a Barry because wow, cool. I, really I really love what he has done over the years with sting, yeah, and just the past few months, I've done like a deep dive on some of sting's um like tour documentaries and live um concert that they're kind of filmed live concerts that were released in the early 90s and late 80s, and Branford is on quite a lot of them. And, and he's playing a, I'm guessing it's like a silver-plated Mark VI soprano, but with a Barry uh mouthpiece. And it sounds amazing. But then when I tried it, I could barely play the thing. It was too stuffy for me.
0: Ah, oh, that's really interesting. Mine feels quite open, but it also is really naughty. It's really hard to control. It it <laughs> does things that I don't want it to do. And like I spent ages practicing it. And because it's a Mark Six, I spend ages practicing it. And because it's old, it's about an inch too short, so the tuning is really wild. Um, if you like, stand it up next to a modern sop. It's you know they're like they're just taller now, so there's so many problems. But it sounds cool, and but it's so much about you, isn't it? As a as an individual, I mean, with regards to mouthpieces and teeth, throat, mouth shape, all that fun stuff.
1: Yeah, because um. I had a conversation with, um, do you know Tom Waters? Yeah. He's a, quite a young, great alto, oh, amazing saxophone player, but I think he's, his main thing is alto. Um, I had a conversation with him about gear and mouthpieces and stuff recently. And, and, um, and I think generally I, I just don't, um, I try not to dwell on it too much. And I try not to let myself be too tempted down the rabbit hole of
0: gear. Yeah, me too. I've is, had this thing for like 20 like, years.
1: <laughs> yeah yeah Cause it it cause it, does, it all comes from you um and and so i i the, the best thing about that Morgan Fry piece I mentioned is that it just it's really comfortable and it doesn't mm. seem to get in the way of me playing at any dynamic across the full range of the horn and um and so it's good that I'm not thinking about the thing whilst I'm playing it. I can just think about the music I'm playing yeah.
0: Yeah, I, I watched your you've done a, a like a, a video with the shop dot UK talking about gear holding the tenor and you saying that I just don't want to fight it it just is supposed to work but that yeah. really resonated with me as like key aim more than anything is like yeah yeah I shouldn't have to fight to the death to get like certain range out you know yeah
1: yeah, Absolutely, yeah. I mean certainly with Tenor, I think
0: I'm at a stage
1: where I can just play on a good day, play comfortably. But um, it's funny, alto is kind of like a weird kind of black magic thing that I just can't really figure out in its entirety yet. There's still a lot of like little niggly things that I need to work on with that, but um, I'll get there one day.
0: That's that's interesting that you've – because I feel the opposite way. I would rather feel like that on my tenor. My alto will behave. It will do what I want. I'd much rather play the tenor. I'm much more of a like Michael Brecker, Chris Potter kind of place in my brain, uh, and it just doesn't. It, I, it's still a bit of a scrap. But um, is there anything specific with the alto that you that you feel like it is makes it difficult?
1: Um, I, I don't know. I think um, is the thing the main thing that I, I need to work on is intonation. Right. So in certain areas, and it's not that it's to do with it being a Mark Six because it's consistent on different horns, different mouthpieces, and so it's it's something to do with just the core elements of playing the alto saxophone. The certain things that I'm. Hopefully, it doesn't come across. I don't think it is noticeable for a listener, but it's certainly at the forefront of my mind whilst I'm playing.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Um, It's a funny, but uh, yeah, it's, it's.
1: Sorry, you carry. On. I think it's just because it. For me, it's quite a new instrument, even even though I started on alto, like a lot of people do, and I, I've just primarily been a tenor player for fifteen, twenty years, and so I'm I'm now playing a little bit of alto, so I'm I just, I've had to do a bit of homework to to catch up, I suppose.
0: Wow amazing John thank you so much for coming to talk to us on the jazz podcast it's been amazing I could do this all day just just like we haven't even talked about reeds oh my gosh but um let's (laughs) come back to that um it's been a massive pleasure thank you so much for coming on the show and our listeners are going to love this especially the sax players who are into gear because it has been really interesting thank you of course thank you for having me it's been a pleasure Thank you so much for listening to the show. We'll see you next week. Here is a fantastic saxophone solo from John. This is the track, If You're Too Shy, Let Me Know.